we're, we've gone from the time when there's maybe five or six people in the world that would decide what do we use computers for that now any one person infrastructure as code, they have access to the biggest data center in the world the same day they come up with an idea. So it's just, it's numbing to me how fast that's going. And that's where a lot of the concern comes in is how do we do things faster and at scale? How does security keep up? How does it keep up with the business and, and where it wants to go? So big, big challenges there. It makes it sort of very exciting. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial and technology markets can be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is brought to you by ABEX, and I'm Michelle Dennity, your co-host and guide through the intersection of privacy, security, and digital technology. Today, you're in for a treat. We welcome my very longtime friend, Jim Rivas, co-founder and chief executive officer of the Cloud Security Alliance to Smarter Markets for our latest series examining the evolution of digital identity and how self-sovereign identity specifically can help bring trust and privacy back into a consent-based economy. For many years, Jim Rivas has worked in the information security industry as an entrepreneur, writer, speaker, technologist, and business strategist. His innovative thinking about emerging security trends have been published and presented widely throughout the industry and have influenced many, including me. As the driving force behind the Cloud Security Alliance, Jim is helping to shape the future of information security and related technology industries and has been named as one of the top 10 cloud computing leaders by searchcloudcomputing.com. Stay tuned, my conversation with Jim is coming up next. And now back to this week's episode of Smarter Markets. So welcome, welcome, welcome to Smarter Markets. You guys are in for a Big treat. I have not talked to this lovely gentleman in way too long, but we've known each other too long to admit because then people know we old people. So Jim Rivas, welcome to Smarter Markets. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. It's great to be emerging from the cave, the COVID. So doing, doing well. I hope you're doing well also. Yeah, definitely. And, and what they can't see because it's a podcast is that he's wearing an insane cloud posse lightning striking shirt today. So perfect theme for the day of lightning has struck, doesn't strike twice. Let's get right into it and then go to all sorts of funky places. I remember a day, I want to say maybe 2008, maybe 2007, when I talked to uh, young James uh, about this idea he had about this cloud security alliance and people were just stopping calling it the network and grid and utility compute and blah, blah, blah. And we started calling it the cloud. And so Jim had the foresight to say, I think we're going to need a bigger boat. So can we go back to that time, Jim, and, and talk about what is the cloud security alliance? What was it at its origin? And of course, 
where are you now here all these years later when cloud is the thing as you predicted? I, I was sort of coming out of a few different projects I had been working on and wanting to understand what do we see sort of next. And there's a there's an um, an entrepreneurial coach, I think a speaker uh, named Dan Burris, who is pretty famous for having this sort of expression, solve tomorrow's problems today. And I love that. And as I reflected on, okay, I'm seeing this virtualization and these application service providers, and you could see that, that we're really, um, you can maybe look at Jericho Forum and we're looking at, hey, identities, it's new perimeter. We're, we're really starting to go just virtual in the very early stage. And I thought back to, well, how does security handle change? And the answer was not well. Um, you know, if you remember like the, the early 2000s RSA conferences, like the big giveaway would always be these little Wi-Fi detectors that security professionals would get so they could walk around in their offices, find rogue Wi-Fi access points so they could destroy them, not just worry, but they would destroy them. And so we weren't good at sort of solving tomorrow's problems. And so as, as I could see this sort of, we could see this viral adoption of cloud. You could see the, the problem we're going to have is we're not going to have defensible security best practices when we need them, which wasn't going to be a big problem in 2007, 2008, but like 2012, it was going to be a problem. So as I was thinking through this and I spent like a year and a half on this, the financial market meltdown happened. And what came out of that is there was a lot of security professionals with free time. And so that sort of accelerated the idea that, well, let's not just announce this and have just this kumbaya and, and just talk about what we want to do. Let's actually try and launch the organization with sort of the definitive version one white paper about what we should be doing with cloud. And so, again, finding a lot of those people had time on their hands. They said, yeah, let's let's go do that. So we worked on that in 2008 and launched it in 2009. And, and we found there were a lot of other organizations that had the same idea. And then when we sort of did that preemptive strike with not only the organization, but the best practices, then yeah, the, the, it was born. So that was April of uh, 2009 when that happened. And uh, we've, we were, it was the right time. It really was. And, and that's, again, solving that tomorrow's problem. So we saw a big spike in growth in 2012, 2013. Another big spike during the pandemic because people really had to think about how they had to operate virtually and put a lot more of their assets in the cloud and say, okay, we need to make that shift now for digital transformation. So we went from, you know, a person with an idea with a few other people. So now we've got over 110,000 individual members, 110 chapters. Um, we've got about 60 or so employees, and we are the program managers. We kind of herd the cats, but out of that 110,000 individual members, there's about six, 7,000 people who are just really dedicated volunteer researchers, presenters, organizing chapters, doing all those sorts of things. So. So it's been definitely heartwarming. It could not have been done without a community that really rallied behind it. I happened to be there to say go, but then it was the industry that actually went with it. So it's, it's, it's going very well. It's really cool. And I think it plays into 
sort of the theme in this wave of smarter markets where we're, we're talking about identity and self-sovereign identity and what does this all mean? And, and you talked a, a, a smidge about that with the, the kind of move to distributed compute at scale. But I think it's really interesting too that you, the man, the individual, came and were able to herd all of these other individuals with their own identities and into the right direction. And, and I remember that time very keenly that there were other players in the market with very big tech brands saying, oh, this will be the IBM group, or this will be the Microsoft group. You know, and those are the players that you would think are terribly well-funded. They've got full-fledged marketing things. Talk a little bit, if you will, and I know that all of those people are contributors to your organization as individuals and as sponsors for a lot of the activity. Why do you think something like this that is so technically oriented and really so deep in the weeds, geeky business, how is it that a group of dedicated identities, if you will, were able to pull that off? Is that something that the venture people ever would have funded is sort of one side of the question. And then the other is, how do you look at cloud and identity? And then let's dig further into that, because I think those are the two sides of identity is like who you are and what you are. And then what do you do with it? So, I mean, I think in terms of how this was sort of marshaled, like key success factors is, I think people underestimate the power of community. They really do. And, you know, you can have a group of experts that are anointed, elected, or whatever else, but that sort of mass crowdsource knowledge that's there is, is very powerful. You can see a lot of trends. You can sort of connect dots in a more efficient way. And frankly, we had a, a lot of people say, hey, because you incorporated this as a nonprofit, no shareholders, we know we can trust you. We know we can do that. You know, since I, I think I trace like being full-time in information security around 92 and people have been trying to kill, you know, information security, or I guess we call it cybersecurity now. And oh, it's just a feature of this or that. And there's just, there's no way. There's just, now we have chief security officers who like report to boards of directors and people just understand you got to have someone watching all these people building technology, building businesses. It's got to have this independence. And so I think those were sort of key uh, success factors there. You know, the, the idea of identity is just huge and profound, I think, to what we do. And, and I always like to think of that as it's more broadly than the identity of the person or the individual, but we need to think in terms of devices and instances, data stores, compute instances that could be very transient. We need to think of all of those things and in a root of trust and in a, in a trusted way. And again, this is something that for that grassroots feel, I always feel that's something that the community really needs to own it. We all need to own our identities. And one of the earliest companies I worked for in the industry was PGP and you know that that got started to serve, like I think it was the nuclear freeze community being spied on and maybe missionaries in other countries. And we need to get back to that as we as we build bigger and bigger systems and there's more consolidation. We got to figure out how we can actually have that happen where people own their identities and they control their destiny here 
but it's it's really fundamental. It, it's it's when you talk about zero trust and we have a project software defined perimeter. It's all it's about how do we create those those dynamic perimeters, those dynamic relationships based on identity that really minimize all the all the foolishness and the data leaks and everything else. I think it's an interesting. I don't know if it's a cultural artifact, um, but what you're saying resonates on a couple different levels. One, particularly as a privacy person, culture and dynamism and context, that's the name of the game for privacy. And what you're saying is the community of people coming together in a context, in a time, in a place with special skills, with different skills, are dynamic in one direction. And then we as individual peoples decide whether, if, how we want to curate what we're projecting, what we're willing to participate in, what we're not willing to participate in. How does all of this sort of dynamic tension roll up to this point that you're making that is so important is that security is no longer an annoyance. Maybe people are annoyed by it, but it's no longer an annoyance. I think people recognize that like automotive or airplane safety, it's just something that has to be a checklist item every single time you compute. So how do you reconcile these sort of cultural norms, dynamic identities, and we get to decide as as carbon spaceships what we're deciding to be against some of these more static, well, I guess they're not really static, but they're slower moving goals of a brand that is a government or a, a large business or someone who's who's sort of managing cloud-like outcomes or, or th- outcomes based on cloud. I know it's like a bundle of sticks. So you can pick any one of those and take it anywhere you like. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it is, it is somewhat hard to unravel. And, and I don't want to be a Pollyanna and say that everyone everywhere has this, this view of identity as, as something that is sovereign that people should own or that security is business enabler and instead it's this sort of overhead. But I do think that we do find that on an individual level, a security practitioner practitioner individual level, I see a lot more commonality in the viewpoints than you do with like different govern, uh, governments and and corporations that maybe do have a little bit of that stasis. And so, and they do have different views. Oh, security is great. It's great for spying on people. It's great for not having privacy. That's what's terrific about it. You know, the, the positive side of it is, is this ability to take with encryption to say, Hey, how would you change your business? How would you change your life if you could actually be anywhere in the world? on a moment's notice because of some trend and say, hey, oh, I want to start a business in this like remote South Pacific island. And it's actually, if I have a little bit of bandwidth, I can actually do that because I know I can bring the security with me and it doesn't need to be on the pallet. And so, you know, security is is the way you can go to a any ATM, any corner of the world and have access to your money. They put a lot of security into that. So it existed in the old days, but we're, we're, what we're really seeing now that it can actually enable business just instantaneously and create new businesses. And we're, we've gone from the time when there's maybe five or six people in the world that would decide what do we use computers for that 
Now, any one person, infrastructure as code, they have access to the biggest data center in the world the same day they come up with an idea. So it's just, it's numbing to me how fast that's going. And that's where a lot of the concern comes in is how do we do things faster and at scale? How does security keep up? How does it keep up with the business and, and where it wants to go? So big, big challenges there. It makes it sort of very exciting. One of the big trends I've noticed just in the last maybe eight years is how much more cybersecurity is part of national security. And so while I see a group like CSA being strengthened by individual practitioners and that strengthening us, we're actually sort of weakened a little bit by the individual nations kind of pursuing their own sort of strategies with this because it's just another weapon to them. So I think that kind of dynamic is pretty interesting and that's the sort of thing we're kind of watching and how do we be very like creative and resourceful to sort of make those things really work sort of just a very short story. I, I, a few years ago, I found out from our Chinese chapter that we had sort of a new board, all this. And the chairman of that was a gentleman named Dr. Fang Bingjing, who he was the Communist Party official who was the architect of the Great Firewall of China. Developed. Oh, he's our new business partner. He's got a different view of some of these things, but you know they felt it was a good thing the Chinese government did to like work with some of these international groups, and then it's kind of gone back and forth there. But um, we just got to we got to talk, we got to be open, and I'm trying to look at where we can do things positively. But I see some, I do see some dark, you know, hate to use the the pun, I do see some dark clouds with sort of how we're this tension between what the community wants to do and how nations are kind of looking at exploits and looking at all of the, the things in cybersecurity and reimagining how they can be used for offensive purposes. There's like three questions in there. I'll, I'll start with the nation state component because I remember back in the day around when it was like grid on a skid time, our public policy messages were don't ban the cloud. You know, it was like, ban the bomb, don't ban the cloud. The cloud, if anything, feels like it's spread more thinly across more types of technologies, more types of business motion, uh, more scaling projections for the economy, uh, with SaaS business being kind of the only thing you're going to get venture capital for. If we tried to ban the cloud to sort of gird ourselves against some of these darker clouds. Uh, where, why, how, thoughts? How do you prevent banning the cloud, but ban the dark cloud maybe? Well, people are trying, <laughs> we're, we're gonna find out. And I don't know that they're all necessarily negative, but you know, in Europe, they are pursuing this Gaia X. What's Europe needs its own digital infrastructure, which is, not the first time. It's a it's another run at that. And, you know, they do have some of the big cloud providers involved. So I'm not quite sure how it's gonna shake out. You know, a lot a lot of the the data sovereignty side of things where the information needs to be in our country. And you know, you can argue that if you hold the keys and the information's encrypted in another country, really it's in your country, but that doesn't seem to pass muster. The fact that we have so much compute 
now. And I, I sort of liken it as this. It's your, your technology is either in the cloud or it's managed by the cloud. That's it. And because of that, the cloud providers have had to build more and more infrastructure in more and more countries. So they're able to solve some of the data sovereignty just by saying it's pretty cheap for us to kind of put this everywhere. But ultimately, it's that sort of that in the background, what is the government cloud provider relationship going to be? Are they going to be transparent about that? How are those interfaces going to work? When is information going to be turned over? How, all, all those sorts of things, all those backdoors, all the things that we hear about, that those are things that we need to, we need to settle. And cloud itself, I, I have this sort of theory and I don't have it all sort of worked out because cloud is, it's, it's not so much about bigger and bigger data centers and the cloud providers getting bigger and bigger, although certainly they are. It's about this orchestration. It's having sort of this standards-based orchestration with how you instantiate SaaS or, or whatever else. And we're getting so much power on mobile devices. We may see some return to some grid-like computing. You see some of that that's out there. But um, I sort of feel like the concerns about, hey, it's bigger and bigger cloud or it's, it's more, it's in control of fewer and fewer companies and maybe bigger countries. Um, I feel that there is an architecture that is an intersection between the scale and efficiency of cloud and the ability of blockchain to provide this opaqueness to them and allow people to have direct transactions without even third-party intermediaries that somehow I feel like a lot of the solutions, which it's going to be all greenfield stuff. It's not, it's not legacy stuff. We can't just upgrade legacy technologies. We're going to build cloud plus blockchain. That's going to create this sort of secure based on identity, strong crypto, all of those sorts of things. The blockchain I've, I've seen so far, we still have, you know, some work to do in a lot of different areas, but that's going to, if we want perfect privacy, we can get that. If we want complete transparency around certain information, we can do that too with it. So that's kind of where I think we're going to keep going headlong into making cloud more efficient, bigger, and then we're going to find where it doesn't have the granularity to solve the business problems, the nation state, law enforcement, the privacy, children's privacy. That's where we're going to find blockchain really sort of step up to fill that gap. Yeah. And, and it's, it's such a good intersection of things with identity where there is the possibility of remaining anonymous, at least transactionally. Um, what does that mean? I mean, talk about going where the future is going, what you're proposing. I happen to agree with it again. So not very controversial. Sorry, listeners. I think like the human body, like every seven years, the infrastructure physically is going to have to flip over. I don't think we're built for the type of data that quantum and having identities, whether it's lower level uh, distributed ledger or you know, full metal blockchain for certain important things. So I guess there's a couple thoughts about where you think the future is on like where in the data stack and the physical stack and the software stack we change first. I can't remember what the second is. So let's go with the first. The innovation that happens really is 
the infrastructure, the large infrastructure providers, which people, they, that's what they, a lot of people think that's all the cloud is. That's really the tiny part in terms of small number of players. The, the SaaS, you know, the SaaS on the innovation in terms of software and taking business ideas and the proliferation of how we marry that to new sorts of devices and form factors of you know, embedded, wearable computing, all of these sorts of things. That's kind of where I, I think we, we are going to see what kind of goes first in, in changing these things. Now, there's, there's a lot of questions in that. It's like, are, is it going to maybe be like, you know, virtual reality or other modes of how compute's delivered that are going to provide that sort of that generational shift? Because the, the issue that we deal with is, is legacy. And I guess maybe one thing I have that might be a little bit provocative on like how we get to privacy is not only do I think that we are sort of, we're delaying the future of good privacy by trying to carry along a lot of legacy sort of technology, but I'm kind of even wondering if sort of people aren't kind of a legacy when we think about like the slime trail of information that you and I have already out there. We can't, we can't put that back in Pandora's box and, Maybe we need to sort of do a Y2K, pick a date in the future and say, people who are born on that date or after, they get a different privacy treatment. And then we can build towards that because we spend a lot of time just trying to fix all the problems we've created already. And I think we're kind of spinning our wheels a little bit on that. So I think if we knew we had this sort of clarity, we could build towards it in a way that you know, like Y2K, it's coming. You can't change it. You can't, you know, you can't delay it. So uh, let's go from there. And then I remember my second point was toward a governance and, and uh, cultural reconciliation of will we finally see some sort of a data harmony treaty like we had to do for Admiralty law in the 1500s and like we have had to do for space law and for satellite deployment where it doesn't really respect the dirt so much. The the data likes to flow where it flows. And as you've said, these data sovereignty things, they're, they're sort of power plays, but the reality of how the bits and bytes actually are functionalized and, and, and are actually good for things like disaster recovery or, you know, just serviceability. So will we, will we get to some sort of a treaty is one thing. And then the second thing that's totally unrelated to the second thing that I forgot last time is, is quantum the Y2K for cloud, the big do over? So the, the idea of us getting to, you know, treaties on how we do this. I, I have a sense that we try to solve too big a problem sometimes. And I think we have sort of the problems are very fluid and move. And I think that what we will want to get to is just very, very strong transparency, you know, very strong transparency around who's doing what with my information and why what is this company doing? What are its business practices and why on a very granular level? And that this is really, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a real fan of how capitalism works with enough information. And the problem is we don't always have enough information. How pricing works and how decisions are made with a strong amount of information is phenomenal. And, you know, it goes back to my 
feeling on community. And, and I think we will see sort of different views on like from a security perspective. Well, this, this practice that was maybe a very controversial, like active defense offensive, we may find instances where that's, we find that that's is okay in how we deal with some like super national sorts of criminal organizations. So it's an example. I'm not advocating doing that. So I really think that we're, we're going to find things to be sort of very fluid on how we agree with how we handle a lot of privacy, data sovereignty, how we solve bigger cultural problems, societal problems. But if we have a real strong understanding of, again, a very granular level, how the different actors are playing, then we will evolve that. And I think we'll solve the smaller problems more correctly, more often. And that's going to lead to, to broader solutions. So the, um, the second question, the quantum is, the quantum is going to at the time, which it's easier to predict what's going to happen in the future. It's harder to predict when it's going to happen. We do research on quantum computing from a, I think somewhat of a narrow, a good perspective, but a narrow perspective on what's it going to do to, you know, factoring of keys and, you know, destroy encryption, making everything we're using for e-commerce, like, you know, hackable. And, and I think there's areas that are focused on, on that, but, you know, quantum supremacy and, and, you know, the mastering that, that, that starts to talk about like refactoring humanity and you start, you know, you can run simulations of every different scenario, every different business scenario to a degree you never could do before and make decisions. And it just seems like, you know, if there is a group and I imagine it's going to grow so that there's going to be competing groups that are going to get quantum, you know, at roughly the same time, a little bit like the, the, the nuclear bombs and things like that. It wasn't too, too long that the U S had had that hege- hegemony, but I, I do feel like that that's where we're going to see, we're, we're not going to see a, a death of the cloud sort of orchestration principles and all of that, but we're just going to see every, every business model in existence now is going to be questioned to a huge degree. It's a question, how long is it going to take for us to understand how to program quantum computing? Because right now we can do the, we understand how to get to this mass amount of compute power but we haven't really figured out how to program them. Once we figure out how to program them, just sort of watch out. It's, it's probably, we're, we're probably going to see like a significant decline just in our population. We're already sort of, I think, demographically trending on that, but it's a lot bigger than cloud. It's going to be like not, not a lot of use for very many people in, in the quantum age, I see, unfortunately. It's so interesting because I, I have two minds on this. One is, we will be the brain and like big data, which was the trend a couple of years back and analytics and AI and ML, there's lots of great data scientists and there's lots of great queries to be run and there's even lots of great infrastructure. But the question is who, who will train the data? Who will govern the data? And just because I can, you know, go on DuckDuckGo and discover where to buy a suit of armor, why would I? So I'm wondering if we become, are we the brain or are we the bacteria in this model? I observe, like I try to observe children, grandchildren, and I just conclude that, you know, there, 
in, in the future, it's going to be uh, the path of least resistance to just have a virtual life and a virtual family. You're just going to have a lot less trouble. Life, life is painful. Life's hard. And <laughs> life is hard. It's fun though, right? <laughs> it is. It is, you know, but I don't, I don't see how, you know, you go past a few generations. I mean, there could be, it's, it's going to need to be a big sort of rebirth in humanity and some different un- unexpected thing that would happen. I mean, maybe the a comet needs to hit us or I don't, I don't know what would happen, but I think there's just more of this slow sort of seductive nature of technology combined with just this interest in pursuing your own sort of life that um, it's just going to make it easier. And so we'll see what, what happens out of that, but it does make me somewhat skeptical. There, there's going to need to be some, some game changer, some event that's going to sort of change the attitude of people. It's always these, it always takes these tough times to go do that where humanity might rise again, but look at the demographics now and how they're predicted it's going to go continue to grow for a few more decades it's going to fall precipitously after that yeah it's really interesting and so we'll we'll follow the the sort of dark pandemic uh trail that you've set forth for us young man we've had an event like pretty much still now but you know in in our not so recent past if we had this global pandemic which i find so fascinating on so many levels. How the world did people convince us all to stay in our homes for as long as they did? That I mean, there were obviously people running around and getting sick and whatever, but it was a pretty spine stiffening event in a lot of ways. A lot of the companies that I talked to, particularly, you know, we're building tools for developers. So I'm talking to a lot of those shops right now. They're having the best year they've ever had. Amazing. They went from, I think, a, uh, what do they call it? You know, touch the keyboard timing from two weeks to contract to like six to 10 weeks from contract, touch the keyboard. So the digital folks seems to have won. On the slightly more sunshiny side of the pandemic, we didn't think we could do telemedicine. I don't think we're ever going back. I had, I have a little cold. It's not COVID. I did get tested for that. So I physically drove my car and had something stuck up my nose, but I did everything else. I called a doctor. I even held my phone and a flashlight to look at my tonsils. They're fine. It's just a cold. And I even was prescribed drugs that were delivered to my home. So that's just one example. I'm desperate to get on a plane to go see my dad. I haven't seen him in over a year now. He had COVID twice. The guy is a freaking baller. I think we're allowed to say that on Smarter Markets. But I haven't seen him and there's no simulation in the world that's going to take that place. But I am able to talk to him every day, even though he is still, you know, he's a long holder. He's he's significantly disabled because of this disease. But the quality of our conversation and, and ability to chat when he can't pick up a mobile phone even, is really, really high fidelity. So that's a lot of stuff. So we've just had this major event. Do you think that wasn't enough to like get us into a better direction? Or do you think it was just a taste of waves of this sort of spine tingling uh, craziness that the cloud and and our own self-sovereign identity and choices is going to bring us? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there's a lot of good that definitely will come out of this sort of tragic 
situation that already is that people are sort of discounting. But yes, definitely what we've talked about, this sort of digital transformation and, and working virtually and having this technology to be in touch with people we haven't seen, but also just investment in there's there's going to be so much investment that's actually happening in sanitization and things like that for buildings, the UV lighting, all these sorts of things. We're going to do things better. And the telemedicine is like, it's a great example. That's I've, I've done a ton of that. So there's a lot that's good. I think there's, yeah, it's got to be a bigger problem because I, I don't think that I, 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 what I've observed as people are trying to fix the problems that they see. But there's not been a lot of examination, I think, of what, you know, my place in this earth and that's sort of broader scale. And I've, I've seen more, I think, like more hostility and more of a breakdown in some social cohesion on those sides. But, you know, the, yeah, the definitely there's been a lot really good about this. And I just wanted to say, you know, I was, uh, several years ago, I was on a, a panel with NIST with uh, your father and, and Dave Cullinane and what a delight it was to go, go do that. So super sharp. And well, he's, he's a proud papa. He was very proud. Of, of, of <laughs> I didn't know that Jim. That's amazing. Well, he should be. Yeah. It was a NIST that these NIST expert panels and it was, it was great. It was maybe 12, 12 years ago, something like that it was awesome. That's really, really cool. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, the old man, he's a pretty, he's a sharp cookie. And, and my mom too is, you know, we've lost her a couple of years ago, but I, I think, you know, I'm listening to what you say, like generationally. And I, I think in my own life, you know, obviously my father was, you know, in the fifties and sixties, he was one of the very first people in computing when it really became, um, you know, and he started like, everyone of that generation in the military, that's where he first had access to that kind of stuff. The way I approach compute as a non-technical person, I sort of do bunny quotes because I'm fairly technical these days. I can't really sling code with the best, but I know what you're talking about. Uh, but I still, you know, I'm a lawyer and I was a psychology major before that and a patent litigator. So I, I'm more on the suits than the geek side of life. But my approach to technology is fundamentally different. When my dad started his first software company that he sold to CompuWare in 1982, you had to home grow everything. You were expected to buy the hardware. Having a handful of mainframe customers, it was a, it was called Abendade. And so there were Abends that were code faults. And so it basically was like very, very, very early, you know, green and white stripe dot matrix printer version of Veracode, right? So instead of having to look through all the code, if it didn't run overnight, which is the only time you could run things because they took overnight, um, this would point out the errors and they'd be like little flags. And really what we're working on in my company today is how do we do that for privacy? How do we know what a privacy fault is? How do we know when self-sovereign entity identities aren't allowing sovereignty, for example. Do you think that, you know, our next generation, maybe we aren't giving them enough credit for being creative and having their own creative approaches to, you know, the generation? I mean, not, neither of my kids want anything to do with technology or law. So, which is what I said at their age too, to be fair. So what are we doing next? I mean, let's bring us back home. Bring us up, Jim. Come on. Oh, I, I think that the, the entrepreneurial spirit is 
strong as strong as it has ever been. And you know, I'm I'm actually one of these people that's on the side of you know people who are worried about oh big tech and all of that. It's like I'm not worried about that because I can certainly envision the next generation creating better companies. You remember that DOJ and, you know, was in 97 or whatever, Microsoft was the most ex- existential threat to humanity. And yeah. And now it's led by a guy from Sun Microsystems. I mean, yeah, life <laughs> is funny. <laughs> I mean, he, even as they were doing that, the seeds of those companies that were going to, you know, take care of them. And, and yeah, Microsoft's great now, but um, it was already in play. And so, I've, I've had like, this is one of my internal sort of rah rah speeches to my staff. It's like, we're a nonprofit. We have a lot of staying power. A hundred years from now, we're going to be around. Is Facebook? No, no, I don't believe it. 20 years from now? I don't think so. I think that the, the next generation, absolutely. When you think about again, some of the stuff I'm real um, passionate about blockchain, building new sort of business models. So you don't do the advertising. It's all these micro payments to you of protecting everything and, and, you know, using avatars, using a lot of different things. I think we'll build better versions of everything we have. I'm hoping people will want to have enough babies to go like enjoy it. But I absolutely am very, very positive about entrepreneurialism, the tools that we are putting into place, going to this, um, a software design world. It's very democratic. You don't need to go to the best school. You don't, you can be anywhere in the world and have a device connect to that and you can change the world. So I definitely see see a pretty, a pretty bright entrepreneurial future that I think is going to make our tech, cloud, privacy, you know, a, a lot better. Again, I think it'll be if we create some real boundaries, like I said, and do a Y2K thing and we really say, legacy stuff has this life and then we're going to go to some new things that will accelerate it. And I, I hope we can think through some ways to do that. Yeah. I love that notion. I, I, and I love a sell by date. I I'm always, you know, for the last 20 plus years, you know, Oh, data storage is cheap and it's getting cheaper. And it's like, no, it's not. You're just storing lower and lower quality analytics and insights because a lot of that stuff is old and rotted. Like it's like a hoarder's den rather than a well-curated environment where people can be clean and not have to take a shower afterwards. So a hundred years from now, there's the the CSA, the Cloud Security Alliance. What's it doing? Is it tech review? Is it policy? Are you writing research papers about, you know, the flying cars and how rude it is that TikTok dancers, you know, appear magically in your living room? Yeah. So it's going to be positing solutions because there's always going to be problems. There's always going to be adversaries, whether they're, they're all human or partially human. There's always going to be this thoughtful sort of competition and adversaries, good or bad. And so we are going to be like positing what those solutions are, but in a very rapid sort of immediate data curation. So uh, attacks attacks will be uh, sort of envisioned. And if we are curating the data right, they'll sort of be solved. So whereas now we, we look at two years of information 
and we see a problem and we spend six months writing white papers and we go get this implemented, it's going to really all be things that are going to be fairly, but not completely, fairly automated with this sort of external oracle that's kind of this guiding light to make sure that um, it, it works. And, and there will be a headless 3D version of me that's going to be wearing my yeah, so it's it's gonna I'll be be there for my great great grandchildren. So like, tell them how it was in the old days. So. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So are are you gonna be a human? Are you gonna be an animal? Are you gonna be a cloud with glasses? What are you gonna be when you're you're an avatar or just a headless gem? I I I want to be. Um, I, I'd love to be like an SR seventy one with. My head, you know, I want to go really fast. So, so that 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 could be what it's gonna look like. But um, I'll definitely be cool. I'll be a good singer. I'll be just like everything. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Smarter Markets and our continuing examination of digital identity and its role in building a trust-based economy. Please help us get the word out about the podcast by leaving your ratings and reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Your support and engagement means the world to us, as does your help spreading the word about smarter markets via social media and word of mouth. On behalf of ABAX, I'm Michelle Dennity. See you again next week. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Markets.